You're listening to Preach the Word with David Ryu, Sermon Archive. Please join me in a word of prayer. God, we come before you now to earnestly seek you. We thirst for you. Our whole being longs for you. Whether we know it or not, all of us, all people without exception, were created for you, and you have put eternity in the human heart. As Blaise Pascal once said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man and woman which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. And so on this first day of the week, we gather here together because we long to behold your power, your glory once more. We gather to worship you, Lord, to lift up our eyes and hearts to heaven and to remember that your love is better than life. All that life on earth has to offer pales in comparison to eternity. And all people are like, are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. As we remember the brevity of our remaining days, Help us, Lord, to anticipate more and more of what you have prepared for those who love you. For in your great mercy, you have given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish spoil or fade. Heavenly Father, we pray for Diaspora Church. We pray that our new church will grow strong and established in the love of Christ. Help us to be a church that keeps your gospel at the center, to be a church of multiplying discipleship, and to be a church that is passionate about world evangelization Lord, consecrate your people here now and help us to realize our higher calling to serve as your ambassadors and in your mission to reconcile the world to yourself. Lord, consecrate this church to truly become a people who are consumed by your glory, to be a people who will spend their lives to spread and preach the word wherever we go. We also ask you, Lord, of the harvest, that you send us more workers. For the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Raise up passionate disciples of Jesus Christ among us who are teachable and ready to serve. Send us godly men and women and families who are eager to exhaust all their gifts, their time, their talents, and their resources to build up your church. As you told Simon Peter, 
To take care and to feed your sheep is our deepest expression of our love for you, Jesus. And so now as we open up your Holy Scriptures to feast on your word, we ask your Holy Spirit to illuminate your word to us. Open our eyes that we may see wonderful things and more of Christ. For we do not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Set aflame our hearts with holy affections and holy convictions that produces holy living. We ask all this in the name of our mighty Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please open up your Bibles with me to John chapter 18. We'll be looking at John chapter 18, verses 1 to 14. It seems that our journey through the Gospel of John is nearly coming to an end. We're now at the last few chapters of John. And it's probably going to be the most eventful last few chapters as they contain Jesus' arrest, trial, crucifixion, resurrection, and post-resurrection accounts. And what he saw John chapter 17, and John chapter 17, Jesus tells us that the hour has come for him to go to the cross. And then he prays for his beloved disciples and followers. And today in John chapter 18, we will read of Jesus' betrayal and arrest. And it's really going to be the beginning of the end of Jesus' life and ministry on earth. John 18, 1 to 14, hear the word of the Lord. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. 
This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with this commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Amos, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Amen. This was the reading of God's word. And so after Jesus finishes his prayer in 17, everything is set in motion for the cosmic drama of the cross, the hour of which he spoke. Jesus takes his disciples across the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley is just outside the east city walls of Jerusalem. And then they go into a garden. It's interesting because John's gospel here doesn't specify the name of the garden. But with all likelihood, it was the garden of Gethsemane, according to the other gospel accounts. And here we find a gap between verses 1 and verses 2 of our passage. John's gospel leaves out some details of what Jesus was experiencing in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's from what we know and gather from the other Gospels. Because Mark and Matthew's account tell us that Jesus was overwhelmed. And Jesus was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus was experiencing so much anguish and so much agony that his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now it's quite unpleasant to imagine and visualize, but sweating blood is a real medical condition called hematidrosis, where tiny blood vessels in the skin break open and the blood seeps out through the sweat glands. It's a real medical condition and WebMD suggests that this can actually happen, it can be caused by extreme stress, extreme distress or fear, such as facing torture or death. And certainly, Jesus was face to face with torture and death, the impending doom of the cross. Now, whether this was to be understood metaphorically and Jesus was just sweating profusely, or he was actually sweating blood, 
The point is this. The point is that Jesus was experiencing intense emotional and mental trauma. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was so overcome with agony. But, let me make it clear, it was not the foreseen torture or physical pain that brought upon this agony. It was also not the foreseen heartbreak from the betrayal and abandonment of his disciples that brought upon such sorrow. Because, you know, other men, other brave men of the past have endured terrible violence done to them, and even the Roman cross. But no man except Jesus Christ had to drink the cup. The cup is an Old Testament metaphor for God's wrath, the justice of God upon sinful humanity. And of course, you and I here today cannot fathom the full fury and terror of the wrath of God. But this was the cup that Jesus would have to swallow. And at the thought of being crushed and separated from the Father brought Jesus on his knees, sweating drops of blood. And you see, it is from this place of deep agony, deep anguish, our champion prays, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Though he was overwhelmed with sorrow, Jesus arises with all resolve to submit to the will of the Father and to take his place on the cross as the sacrificial lamb. And now we're at verse 2, where the Gospel writer John picks up the narrative. The night is young, and the traitor Judas Iscariot shows up to the scene. He brings along a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. The detachment of soldiers, soldiers here in the Greek language could actually refer to a cohort of 600 men. 600 soldiers. Now we can't be exactly sure how many accompanied Judas that night. But they came in a great number, and they came ready for a battle. And they came ready to draw blood, if necessary, to capture their target. And they cleverly came to arrest Jesus in the middle of the night, in the dark, when no one can see, outside the city walls, because they knew that Jesus had a large following, and they didn't want to incite a mob from forming. And the Jewish leaders were able to devise such a clever strategy only because we're told in verse 2, Judas knew the place where Jesus would often go with his disciples. 
And now everything was going according to plan. Their plan, Jesus was caught in their little trap. And they would arrest him there in that garden. But I want you to look at this with me from a different perspective. What if Jesus was not the one caught in their trap? But Jesus was the one who was orchestrating all these events and deliberately taking steps toward the cross. What if Jesus deliberately chose to go to that place that Judas knew? You see, Jesus didn't have to choose this particular garden as a place to hide, and he didn't. He didn't choose it to be a place to hide, but he chose it to be a place to be found. Jesus deliberately went to the place where Judas knew to find him. You see, in our human perspective, Jesus looks like the criminal who's on the run being hunted. But in reality, he is the champion who is willingly entering the arena with all dignity and resolve. The fact is, Jesus is not surprised by this army. Jesus is not afraid by the company of soldiers. And we know this to be true. You don't have to take my word for it, but look with me to verse 4. See how verse 4 reads. It says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked him, who is it you want? You see, it cannot be any more clear. Jesus knew all that was going to happen to him. He knew he would get arrested. He knew that he'd be facing a death sentence. But if Jesus had such foreknowledge of these events to come, he could have run away. He could have gathered a large army of loyal followers in resistance. But no. Jesus will not be a coward, and he will not stray from the path to the cross, because this was the Father's will. Far from being a coward, Jesus actually takes the initiative to step out and confront his guests first before they can confront him. And with a commanding voice, he speaks, who is it you want? They reply, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am He. Now, if you read Jesus' self-identification here in verse 5 in the original Greek language of the manuscripts, it reads, Ego imi, which can literally, literally be translated as I am. Ego imi, I am. And so the pronoun he is supplied here in the English translation, but the overtone of deity in Jesus' self-identification here is present without a doubt. Remember, at the burning bush, when Moses was asked, and Moses asks God, God, 
for his name. God says to Moses, I am who I am. And this is the name of God that Jesus claims for himself. And verse 6 tells us that at this reply, Judas and his company drew back and fell to the ground. Perhaps they fell because of the blast of God's power in Jesus' reply. Or perhaps they fell because they were so stunned by Jesus' claim to deity. We can't be sure, but regardless, what is clear, what is clear that I want you all to see, what is clear is that there is no way that you can read this narrative with me and think that Jesus is the helpless victim. Sure, he will be caught and captured. He will be falsely tried. He will be hung on the cross naked. But he is no real victim here because a victim has no control over his situations. A victim is powerless against their aggressor. But the Son of God, the Son of God who commands all creation by a word, has allowed himself to be subjected to his arresters, like a lion on a dog leash that can overpower and devour at will. Do you see this? It's so important that you and I see this. The power of God contained, yet manifested in Jesus Christ. He is not a helpless victim, nor a weak and pitiful Savior on the cross. What is more, we see the compassion of Christ. You see it in verses 7 to 8. He says again, he asked them, what is it you want? The second time. Jesus of Nazareth, they said. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. These soldiers, they came prepared for a violent battle. They brought weapons with them. And they would have struck down whoever was in their way to capture Jesus. And there was also incentive for them to capture the closest disciples of Jesus, to put them on trial as well, or at least to get them to publicly renounce and recant their allegiance to Christ. But Jesus had asked his arresters twice and to clarify whom they are seeking. And twice, they were made to verbalize Jesus of Nazareth. You see, Jesus has wisely and reasonably made it plain, if you have named me, if it is me who you want, then take me. But take me alone. I will not resist. And he adds, but these men, my disciples, they are not Jesus of Nazareth. Let them go. You see, he will not allow the soldiers to even lay a hand on his beloved disciples. And so he protects his own. 
and he fulfills the promise that he will not lose one of those the Father has given him. Jesus Christ demonstrates such great humility, self-control, compassion. Jesus Christ is the perfect example of unreserved submission to the Father that we must all seek to imitate. Brothers and sisters in Christ, like our Lord, we must surrender and submit to the will of God with all humility, all self-control and compassion for others. No matter the cost, no matter how inconvenient, no matter how difficult, we must choose the path of obedience, just as Jesus chose the path of obedience to the cross. This is the way of Christ, dear Christians. But sometimes, instead of imitating Christ, it is most unfortunate that we act and think and behave like Simon Peter. As Simon Peter was witnessing these events unfold before him, he panics. He makes a hasty, unwise decision. He acts rashly. And look with me to verse 10. We read that Peter drew out his sword and fights off the arresters and manages to cut off the right ear of the high priest's servant. Now, I think it's worth for us to consider what was possibly going through the mind of Simon Peter? What was he thinking? Maybe he acted out in this way because of fear. Peter was afraid, scared of the arising circumstances around him. He felt threatened and panicked. He felt like he needed to take matters into his own hands, control the outcome. Or maybe Peter acted out because he was angry. He was angry at the betrayal and ambush And in his raging anger and bitter resentment, he could not help but throw back a punch and retaliate to take his revenge, to give them a piece of their own medicine. Or maybe Peter acted out in self-interest. He couldn't afford to get Jesus to get arrested because Jesus was supposed to rise in power to build a political kingdom, and then supposedly give Peter the fame and riches and prestige and power that he always wanted. And things were not going according to his plan, so Peter needed to act to fulfill his own agenda. Or maybe Peter had good intentions, and he thought that Jesus just needed his protection. But little does he know that Jesus can call down legions of angels to slay all the armies of the earth in a heartbeat. 
But no matter which way you look at this situation, no matter what Simon Peter was thinking, Simon Peter is found guilty. Guilty of standing against the will of God. It was foolishness for Peter to try to prevent the arrest of Christ. Foolish. His actions were far from praiseworthy. Rather, he is sharply reprimanded by Christ, put down your shame, sword. How foolish of Peter. How foolish of Peter to try to prove his allegiance to Christ with his sword when he could not even do so later on in his own words when he is asked to confess Christ. You see, Peter would go on to deny him three times. But perhaps in this strange way, this was his first denial of Christ when he acted out against the arrest, when he stood against Christ on his way to the cross. And I can almost hear the echoes of Jesus' harsh words to Peter from Matthew 16, 21. Jesus reveals to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer, to be killed. And at this, Peter began to rebuke Jesus, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. You see, when we oppose the will of God, when we run from the will of God, when we misconstrue the will of God, we speak and act for Satan. And we do not submit to the will of God because we do not give our first concern to the things of God. But rather we act according to our own concerns, our own self-interests. And friends, our passage today calls us to reflect on ourselves, to see whether if you are living in submission to the will of God with all sincerity and resolve, or if you are living a lie because you're not really serving God at all, but serving Satan and yourself. You know, a lot of people come to me and ask me, David, what's God's will for my life? What's God's will for my life? They, they tell me their passions, their interests, their career prospects, their options. And they ask, what does God want me to do? And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I have no idea. But I do know this. What I often notice is that though they might seek the will of God, they've already set the terms and outcome. They already set the terms. 
They talk of obedience, but they will avoid all obedience that might come with hardship, suffering, loss. They will avoid obedience that demands them to give up their own lusts and earthly treasures. And they've already set the outcome. They talk of glorifying God, but their mind and their heart is consumed with their own goals, their own ambitions, their own fantasies, their own plans, and their own idea of what God should do for them. Friends, if this is you, I pray that you leave here with conviction to repent today. You know what the difference was between Satan, sorry, not Satan, the difference between Simon Peter and Judas Iscariot? What's the difference between Simon Peter and Judas Iscariot? They both made foolish decisions They both acted rashly according to their own agendas. They both betrayed Christ by denying him or by selling him off for a few coins. But the difference between Peter and Judas was repentance. Repentance. Judas, after realizing what he has done, he experiences remorse devoid of faith in God's mercy, and he hangs himself. But Peter, after realizing what he has done, he weeps, and he weeps, and he weeps bitterly, and throws himself at the feet of the resurrected Christ. I believe what happened in the heart of Peter was that he turned away from his own sinful inclinations and he turned to Christ for mercy and new direction. In this way, let us too also surrender to Christ today with no reservations. The Apostle Paul tells us to the closest thing to a formula for knowing the will of God for your life. In Romans 12, he writes, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good and pleasing and perfect will. Have you received the mercy of God? Have you committed to live a transformed and holy life? Have you surrendered your mind to be renewed and shaped by the Word of God? If you answered yes to these three questions, then you will be able to discern and know and embrace the will of God. Well, perhaps some of you here today believe that you've acted out against the will of God too much or too long 
Perhaps you've begun to believe the lie that you've messed up God's plan for your life. Well then, finally, our passage today teaches us that you can't mess up enough to mess up God's plan. You can't mess up enough to mess up God's plan. After Simon Peter acted out in violence and cut off the right ear of the high priest's servant, Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus touched the man's ear and healed him. Jesus reverses the destruction that Peter caused and brings restoration. Jesus takes the responsibility of his disciples' failure by denouncing his actions publicly and commands him to put away the sword. Jesus calls for peace between both parties, and the peace offering was made, and the peace offering was himself. Jesus will not allow Peter to prevent his arrest. Jesus has submitted to the Father's plan of redemption. He will not allow anything or anyone to get in his way from the path of obedience to the cross. And truth be told, no matter the circumstance, no matter the resistance, and no matter the failure of people, of you and I, nothing can stop the sovereign God from achieving His will and plans. The cosmic drama of the cross is about to unfold. The man of sorrows will be arrested. He will go with them silently as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shears. In the words of John Calvin, let us remember that the body of the Son of God was bound in order that our souls might be free from the bonds of sin. In our hero's final words, as he is bound and led away in verse 11, is this rhetorical question, Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? We recall back to Jesus' agony and prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he showed us his firm resolution to drink the cup of divine wrath on the cross. And surely as he hung there, Jesus drank every last drip of that bitter cup, and he endured and absorbed the terrifying judgment of God against sin. And Jesus did this so that you don't have to drink the cup of wrath, but he offers you the cup of salvation and fellowship with God. To all who would have faith in Him, to all who would depend on Him, there is no more wrath, no more condemnation, no more hopelessness. To all who would believe in Christ and trust in Christ, there is forgiveness of sins, restoration, and sweet everlasting enjoyment of God. So I implore you, dear unbelieving and lost souls, come to Him today. Come to Christ 
all you who are weary and burdened, and he will give you blissful and eternal rest. And dear beloved Church of God, as we gaze upon the beauty of our Savior and his love poured out over us on that rugged cross, let us resolve to submit ourselves to the will of the Father at any time, at any place, at any cost, to do anything, all for the glory of his name. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you sent your Son. Jesus, we thank you that you willingly went to the cross. No matter the obstacle, no matter the hardship, no matter the sorrow, Jesus, you took it all upon yourself and you bore all of our sins so that we don't have to. Christ, we pray. Spirit, we pray that in your mercy that you give genuine faith to all in this room. All who would believe in Christ shall not perish but have eternal life. And we pray that, Lord, you would increase this, this faith and help us to live out our faith, to share this faith with others, and to be confident before you in the righteousness of Christ. Protect us, guide us, direct us, all for your great name. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.